Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that knows you can't grow grass on a busy street. He is the captain. But you can grow some weed right behind the high school in the open field. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Tonight, we are drinking Shiner Holiday Cheer, garage-grade four out of five bottle caps. Mm -hmm. Shiner Holiday Cheer is a Bavarian-style dark wheat ale, Dunkelweizen, brewed, thank you, brewed with Texas peaches and roasted pecans. And this wonderful batch of holiday cheer was brought to us by these fantastic people. First up, we have Anna in Henderson, Nevada. And next up in South Carolina, we have Caddy. Next, we have a tongue twister. And cheers, mates, goes out to Allison and Ashlyn in Andover, Massachusetts. And a big OH to Ashley in Sandusky, Ohio. We also have Adam in Bend, Oregon. And last but not least, we have Auntie in Finland. So a long-distance cheers to you. And thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to do so for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, Untapped, you can do so. Our handle is at truecrimegarage. And if you want to help out the show, tell a friend, subscribe to the show, and leave us a five-star review at the iTunes store. That's enough of the business, Captain. Gather round, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Eighteen-year-old Sebastian Burns and his friend Atif Rafay, they were staying at Ratif's parents' home. This is back in July of 1994. Atif had been off at college, and Sebastian was living up in Canada. They're visiting with Atif's family in Bellevue, Washington, where his sister lives as well. They've been there for a few days by this point. They go out for a night on the town. They go out to uh, a light dinner 
followed by a movie and then some drinks afterwards. They come back to Atif's parents' home and they find that all three members of Atif's family had been brutally murdered. They call 911. They run outside waiting for the police to arrive. And shortly afterwards, we start to see some things that may or may not point to Sebastian and Atif as the guilty party. Right, or at least the number one suspects. Correct. Well, they are definitely, I think, we're seeing a lot of actions by the Bellevue Police Department that would show them that they at least believe that Sebastian and Atif had committed these murders. Right. And where we left off yesterday, the two had returned to Sebastian's parents' home in Canada where they would remain there. Right, and at first, Atif and Sebastian are very cooperative with the police mm-hmm. and law enforcement, but now under the advice of an attorney... Uh, their lawyer, they say, hey, don't cooperate anymore. Yeah, and but we do have Sebastian's family and the friends of both the boys. They're kind of rallying around both, both of them, believing them to be totally innocent. Right. And so now that the they've stopped cooperating with the Bellevue Police Department, the detective there, remember this is Detective Thompson who is leading the investigation, he decided to keep digging into the boys' past. And he found what he thought was a bit of a disturbing clue from their past. <laughs> yes. He discovered he that. He discovered that Sebastian was in drama club. Yes. And he, that's disturbing. He was acting. <laughs> he was I'm, act- I'm an actor. Actor. Uh, yeah. He found that the, the disturbing clue was that Sebastian was in a high school play called Rope uh, about two kids who commit the perfect murder. Yeah. The detectives believed that well, the on. fictional Let- murder story inspired the real life crime and even more chilling. The weapon used in the story was the same as what was used to kill the Rafay family, a baseball bat. Right. Have you ever seen this play? No, I have not. I've not seen it. So what's uh, kind of interesting about it is they have um, this murder victim, mm-hmm. right? And they put this murder victim in a box. And okay. so you see this at the beginning of the play and then there's this party and they're inviting all the guests in. And as they're inv- inviting the guests in, they know that there's a certain number of guests, mm-hmm. right? But what nobody at the party knows is the final guest that they're waiting on is in the box. And in the victim is then revealed? Yeah, so it, it, there's actually a very like dark comedy aspect to this because based off of what people are uh, okay, saying that makes sense so when, when you throw in comedy i'm thinking why are they showing why are they acting out a murder plot as a, a high school play but but yeah. when you say comedy i okay I, i'm with you now yeah so there's there's all these scenes in the play where the audience kind of laughs because, because they, they know what's in the box they know what's in the box yeah so it's very but you know so <laughs> one Yes, this is odd that he's in this play about this thing, and it's odd Mm -hmm. that the weapon used in that case was a bat. That is odd. That's Mm -hmm. a a pretty weird coincidence. But it's also dark comedy play, and it's like, I don't know. Uh, To me, this just seems like grabbing at straws. It's a stretch. It is a leap, my friend. I I mean, I I get it. It doesn't... um it certainly doesn't rule them out. <laughs> we can say no, that. but it doesn't rule them in But it, But yeah, you're not going to get a guilty conviction off of... It. Th- uh, that look, just makes no sense. That would be like some detective 
could now go into your past and my past and they could basically accuse of accuse us of any crime in America because of our past. Well, right. Uh, we know that the murderer was a cannibal and we do know that the second episode of true crime gay Ridge was on Jeffrey Dahmer. So they must've killed these people. No, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a stretch. It's a leap at best. Um, as the investigation continued Atif and Sebastian, they are living in Vancouver. They are spending some of the money that Atif inherited from his parents' estate. Right. They, which, they, they bought a convertible, um, they well, rented an apartment. Go ahead. So the police start thinking that, you know, Atif's motive and Sebastian's motive would be the fact that there'd be an insurance policy on Atif's family. Mm-hmm. And he was going to receive hundreds of thousands of dollars. Cause like we said, his family was definitely upper class. And like I said, they were renting an apartment, but also living at the apartment with Atif and Sebastian is their old high school pal. This is Jimmy Mayoshi. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they are living they are living well, uh, but they are hiding from the media up in Canada because the media, they were in constant pursuit of Sebastian and especially Atif uh, because of their story. Yeah. So even though that their family and friends believed that they were innocent because the the police went to the media and said, hey, these guys fled America to not get charged with these crimes. Now, in Canada, most people find them to be guilty. Yeah, and I, I think I read one newspaper article or maybe it was a magazine article that referred to Sebastian and Atif as the most popular murder suspects in Vancouver. Right, or, and some some people would argue, all of Canada. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but speaking of stories, uh, Atif and Sebastian were concocting their own story. Yeah. Um, this was one that they started working on uh, their very own screenplay about two best friends accused of murdering a family, and they called the screenplay The Great Despisers. Right, and in the movie, or in the script anyways, um, they're innocent. Okay. So that's the screenplay. So it's not about these guys that... Uh, that actually committed the murder, got away with it, and they're they're the great despisers. Right, so it's basically a lot about what they were going through, and... Like I said, there was this whole community that thought these guys were the number one, um, you know, guys that murdered people and got away with it. And now they're in Canada and, and most of these guys couldn't get a job or do anything. So at least they were trying to do something with their time. Mm-hmm. Well, this will take us to January of 1995. So roughly six months after the murders, uh, the Bellevue investigators, they met with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Just to clue some people in, if you're curious, the the RCMP is both a federal and national police force of Canada. So it's Um, basically like the CIA and the FBI all rolled into one. Yeah, I I guess you could say that. I would I would consider it to be more like the FBI uh, of of the great United States. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, America still got my coat on. Uh, The Bellevue detectives met with the RCMPs. This is their serious crimes unit to discuss the case of the Rafay triple homicide. Right. Uh, Bellevue investigators were requesting biological samples. They wanted hair, blood and saliva samples from Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay. And they wanted the RCMP to help get them those samples. Well, and one of the reasons why was they found a, a single hair strand 
on Atif's father on, on the bed. In the uh, bed. And which he was murdered from. So they wanted to test that. Something to compare it to to either uh, maybe make that arrest they were seeking or eliminate them as suspects. Right. Uh, the RCMP, uh, the officers agreed to to do this, to conv- to obtain these biological samples for them. Um, and then they offered up what they refer to as the Mr. Big strategy to obtain a confession. Right. So explain this because we don't actually have the Mr. Big uh, strategy in America. Well, and that's what confused me when I went. Okay, so I'll tell you my knowledge of this case uh, as it were a month ago. Right. Um, I had I had heard of this case. I had probably seen it. I don't know on on Dateline or 48 Hours or one of those shows many, many years ago. We're talking probably 10 years ago, I would guess. And so I remembered hearing of this story and it's a very interesting story. The, the, the thing is though, this Mr. Big strategy that they use that, that we're going to talk about, I thought this was like a one-time deal. And then once we got, we started looking at this case in, um, throw it under the microscope two weeks ago and diving into this thing, found out that this is something they've used multiple times. I mean, time and time again to the, to the point where it's just like a common, it's a common thing uh, that Canada does. And it's, it's going to sound strange. So here's the, the general idea of the Mr. Big operation is this, you, you have some law enforcement that will pose as mobsters basically. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to employ a suspect and they're going to give this person jobs. They're going to have them commit crimes and get paid for the, for their actions. And through the course of building, what they're going to do is try to build a relationship. You're going to build a employee employer relationship. And through the course of building that relationship, because they're both criminals, well, you, my employee, you can confide in me things that you've done in your past in your dark past, things that you're not proud of things that you've gotten away with so that I know that you're a legit criminal like I am. And therefore, I'm going to eventually get this information on tape, uh, whether it be audio or visual, and I'm going to be able to use that against you for your previous crimes. Right. And so that's a form of entrapment. And we don't use that in the States. This is not admissible in courts. So this is how it's going to go down in this particular incident. On April 10th, 1995, the RCMP investigators, they intercepted a phone message confirming a salon appointment with Sebastian Burns. And we should probably point out that at this point, the RCMP have already tapped their phones Mm -hmm. from my understanding. And that's how they, they acquired this phone message, right? So they're going to use this information to make their move. When Sebastian left the salon, someone approached him. The person, a man, asked Sebastian for a ride somewhere. Mm -hmm. The stranger then took Sebastian to a bar and bought him a drink, you know, for his trouble, for driving him. Right. He claimed that his car broke down. He's from out of town. He's staying in this hotel. Can I get a ride? Give me a ride to the hotel. They probably have a lobby bar. I'll buy you a nice drink for the for the gesture. Right. Uh, Sebastian told the stranger that he and his buddies they were working on a screenplay, mm-hmm. and Sebastian said that he didn't have a job and he needed financing to get this screenplay to to the big screen. 
the stranger said he knew someone who could help Sebastian. Now, of course, ultimately the goal here, like we said, is to get Sebastian to meet with the next guy up the chain. You know, this is going to be the the mobster or the boss guy. Right. Um, so, but initially they kind of played this guy off as not that he's going to get you jobs, but this guy possibly might just invest into your film. And so when he meets, you know, this next guy, which is not higher up or lower, I think it's kind of a sidestep, but it's more like, well, uh, yeah, I can't really finance this, but I'm going to give you some jobs. Yeah. And I think that the way that they described this person to Sebastian is that he was a connected businessman that we're going to introduce you to, Mm -hmm. but who he actually met was Sergeant Hazlitt of the RCMP. Right. working undercover, posing as a mobster. And their first meeting that he had, that Sergeant Hazlitt had with Sebastian, was in a strip club. Yeah. So. Which, look, again, this is not uncommon, you know, as far as, you know, a lot of artists know this or musicians know this, guys that are quote-unquote businessmen that want to help out artists or whatever. Uh, sometimes they just want to be around it. You know, I've, I've worked with a lot of, you know, executive producers or guys that ran small rec- record companies that they they were just fans of music, mm-hmm. but they were, but as equally fans of music, they wanted to be at the after party after the show. Right. You know, they wanted to be like play rock star without actually being one. So, you, you know, trust me, there's been a million trips I've taken to Nashville or somewhere to audition for a record company. And where does the manager take you out afterwards? A strip club, you know, whether or not you want to go, that's where they take you. Avoid the ones that have a buffet. Now, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the other Don't thing, though, the chicken, the other thing, though, Captain, is so it's he's supposed to be a mobster. Right. And um, right. it's very, very Sopranos, I think, to take <laughs> him to a strip club for for the initial meeting. Yeah, it's very Hollywood. It kind of sells the part a little bit in it in a very cheesy way, in my opinion. Anyway, mm-hmm. so this this quote unquote crime boss, he tells Sebastian that um, he has cash to invest in his screenplay, but Sebastian would have to earn it. He's got to earn his trust. Right. So the crime boss said that he had some jobs for Sebastian. He also had jobs for Atif and Jimmy Mayoshi as well. Right, if they wanted them, yeah. So Sebastian's first job would be driving a stolen vehicle from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And Sebastian agrees to this. He does the job, and he gets paid $200 for that job. The next job was was a bit better or more lucrative. Go ahead. Because Sebastian, you know, and his uppityness, that's what he is. I mean, he's... You know, when you see interviews with him, he comes off so cocky sometimes. And I I don't think he knows that he's doing it. I don't think he knows it's as bad as it is. But, you know, he was kind of upset. I did something illegal and I got paid 200 bucks. Like, I'm taking a risk. I need, there needs to be a bigger reward. Right. Right. He, he feels like it's a bit grimy that, that he has to do, take such a big risk for such little reward. Right. So then what they do is the next one is they're going to launder money. They're taking uh, money from one bank to another bank and uh, Jimmy Miyoshi, right. Is going to be with him. Yeah. This one. Yeah. So, and the idea is pretty simple instructions here. I think they have Sebastian going into one bank, Jimmy going into the next one, so forth and so on. At the end of the day, they're doing a pretty easy job laundering this money. 
just visiting banks, making bank stops, and they're paid $2,000 cash yeah. for one day's worth of work. That is not bad money. Cash money. You know, but don't launder money. Don't do that. I'm not suggesting that any listener launders money. So through the early part of this relationship between Sebastian and this Mr. Big, I think he, did he go by the name Al or something like that, A.L.? I'm the one who wants to be with you. Oh, I, I, I get what you're saying. Okay. Okay, so anyway, uh, during the course of this, Sebastian did not, he didn't admit to any guilt in the triple homicide. Right. Uh, but at some point, he does confide in the mobsters that if police did find something that could potentially tie him to the crimes, that he might want them to destroy that evidence. Yeah, kind of what happened was they're talking about, hey, you guys are the most famous people in Canada for, you know, quote unquote, getting out you know, away with murder. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, yeah, well, they don't have any evidence. And the guy, you know, when they say that, you know, Sebastian was saying, oh yeah, well, if they found evidence, we'd want you to get rid of that. That was implied by the Mr. Big op operation. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that were saying, Hey, yeah, but you know, like if they did find something, would you want us to get, rid we, of it? we, we can, have that ability. We have that ability. We know some people. Well, they're going to up the stakes here. Um, and what they do is they present a memo to mm -hmm. to Sebastian. And this thing is, it's not real, but it looks very real. It's on Bellevue Police letterhead detailing the evidence linking Sebastian to the murders. And the mobsters offer to destroy this evidence, the, the evidence that's listed in this memo. Well, and again, they're also not saying that they found it, that the Bellevue police department found this evidence they're saying that this is a part of the evidence that they're claiming that they found because they're going to frame you mm. you see what i'm saying mm -hmm. so a lot of people think it's this clear-cut thing where mr big said hey they got this evidence you're busted no because sebastian was like they don't have evidence because we didn't do the crime See what I'm saying? Right. And so then they were saying, well, it doesn't matter if you did the crime or not. This is what they're going to use. This is what they're going they're to say setting, they have. Right. They're setting you up. Mm -hmm. So let, let's be clear about that. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're offering to destroy this, this evidence. Mm -hmm. They're offering to make this problem go away for, for Sebastian. Sorry. But in order to do so, Mr. Big, he wants Sebastian to tell them exactly what happened in the Rafay house the night of the murders. So now this takes us to July 18th, 1995, just about one year after the murder. Sebastian meets with Hazlitt. He meets with Mr. Big, the quote unquote undercover mob dude right. at the Ocean Point Resort at some hotel. And they have hidden cameras rolling here set up to film this whole thing. And Sebastian walks into the hotel room. He takes off his shoes. He gets comfortable on the couch or love seat. He's a, he's a cocky SOB. And he starts talking. And I'm not sure if it's if it's both videos, uh, but on on one, at least one of them, he's having, it looks like he's drinking a beer while he's talking with this Mr. Big. Well, I think they filmed him for a few hours. Yeah. And he, he starts confessing to the murders and we will not get, we'll get into what was said in just a minute, but, um, and we'll go through some of the questions and the answers as well. 
But the key thing here is after he's done confessing to Mr. Big, the next day he returns. The next day, Sebastian comes back to the mobster. This time he's bringing his buddy Atif with him to the crime boss to tell his side of the story, which ends up being recorded as well. Their buddy Jimmy Maioshi takes, uh, ends up talking with the crime boss as well. And this seals it. This seals the deal. Sebastian, Atif, and Maioshi they end up being arrested for things that they said to Mr. Big on tape. When arrested, immediately Sebastian is going to say that he was lying. Right. And that undercover officers um, had intimidated him into making a false confession. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. 
and all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, bloody hell. Cheers, me mateys. All right, Captain, let's get into this confession, and we got a lot of stuff to get to. I want to kind of give a quick little um, a short version of how they confessed to the murders, what they actually did according to their confession that was videotaped in front of this Mr. Big character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what what Sebastian is saying is that we know that they went out to dinner. They go to a movie, and then they go out to another club afterward. And we have these people that can confirm having seen them at the restaurant, having waited on them at the restaurant, having taken their drink order at the movie after, or I'm sorry, at the club after the movie. Mm-hmm. But basically what, what Sebastian's going to say is that the time that they were supposed to be in the movie theater watching the movie is when they returned to the Rafay home and killed Atif's parents and sister. Right. And he says that he he was the one that used the bat, that he attacked Atif's mother first, and then he went and killed the father, and then he killed, um, well, attacked Atif's sister to the point where she was left for dead. Right, and he claims that Atif was basically in another room the whole time. 
Yeah, he's he's kind of setting up and making the break-in thing look like it actually happened. He's he would be the one I'm guessing tipping over the boxes and opening drawers. Mm-hmm. They clean themselves up. Sebastian took a shower, and then they make sure that they get back to that location where they are then seen again after the movie. So their whereabouts are accounted for. They have alibis for what they were doing that night, making them look like they w- it would have been impossible for them to have killed the Rafay family. Mm-hmm. That's their confession. Let's go. Let's go through it. Let's go through this a little bit more because we obvious. This is very obvious that it makes them look guilty. But what we have now, we have a lot of people screaming that no, there are portions of that confession that that actually point to their innocence. Okay. And because we have Sebastian saying all this stuff is a lie. Yeah, we confessed to Mister Big and to his crew, but all this stuff was a lie. Well, right, and just to give a, you know, so they're gonna question and have Sebastian confess, but then they're going to have Atif confess as well. And if you take those two stories, there are a couple things that don't line up between Atif's story and Sebastian's story. And then when you take their buddy Jimmy comes in, um, his story, he doesn't really cooperate much at all. He doesn't really say much at all. He basically... You almost could say he doesn't confess. I right. mean, he, he's, he doesn't confess to any wrong, wrongdoing himself. And I think at the most that he confesses for, as far as Atif and Sebastian are concerned, I think he kind of points to one. Right. And, that, and says, you know, who did it? Well, that guy right there. Right. And it's, again, important to know that once they're arrested, Sebastian, Atif, and Jimmy all will state, hey, we lied. We're, we're innocent. So the first thing that is pointed out by by all the people stating that these young men are innocent and this confession is not real is Sebastian's clothing and what he says in his confession regarding his clothing. Now, this is all taken from the RCMP's transcription of the actual uh, confession. Okay, so regarding the clothing, Sebastian's first explanation to Al, I was right, Mr. Big is going by Al, uh, is that he disposed of his clothes he wore when he murdered the Rafay family. Uh, they point out that this is false. Uh, police confirmed that Sebastian wore the same clothes both before and after the murders were committed. Uh, during the transcription, during the confession, he says, uh, I'll ask bloody clothes, blood on your clothes. Why not? Why didn't you have any blood on your clothes? Burns states because they were gone. He had disposed of these clothes. Where did you get rid of them? In like a dumpster downtown. Right. So we know that part of his story is a lie. But the other thing, too, is at some point he also states that he committed the crimes naked. Yes. So, again, maybe he's lying that he got rid of them. Maybe he's not. Maybe he took the clothes off, killed them in the underwear. There was two sets of underwear that were found in a washing machine. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, in Atif's house, supposedly belonging to Atif and Sebastian, there was no um, physical evidence on those clothings. They weren't washed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to me, that was placed there by somebody. Yeah, and then when he tells, he being Sebastian, when he tells his story to Al, changing his story that he committed the murders without any clothes on, that's when he says, you know, th- that's what the shower was for. He took burn states that he took a shower to clean off. Right. And his exact words are took a shower to clean off, you know, blood and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, and then the thing about Atif, when they talk about the clothing, 
with Atif, he's saying, oh, yeah, well, some of the stuff we threw in dumpsters, but some of the stuff we threw out the window. Now, we should talk about the blood. Threw out the window, but threw out the window of a moving car. Right. And what we should really talk about is the evidence that was in Atif's father's room. Uh, based off of the, the the blood splatter or spatter spatter um, evidence, there's possibly two, definitely two individuals, but most likely three individuals in that room, which again, we have three suspects so that wouldn't rule them out. But again, when Sebastian is telling his confession, he's saying, well, Atif is not even in the room at the time. So certain things just don't line up. But we also have Sebastian stating that Jimmy Mayoshi did not participate in the murders. Right. So according to Sebastian's confession, there's only two people committing those crimes. Right. And like I said, there's evidence. There's evidence to suggest that there could be three people in the room. I mm-hmm. want to be clear about that because here's one thing that I it's have not definitive, right? Here's one thing that I, here's one big problem I have with, with this case in particular. And we see this with other cases. When you get a whole mob of people claiming that somebody's innocent, they start skewing things just as much as we've seen police skew things and media skew things. Right. They skew it in a way that's going to be presented to you that, that they totally got this wrong. And here's why. And there, there are websites, there are newspaper articles. There are, um, there's plenty of stuff out there on this case that have presented that it's factual that three people had to have been in that room. Right. Yeah. And, and we should be clear. It's evidence suggests the possibility of three people being in the room. Definitely two, possibly three. Well, and also we, we talked about the hair that was found on the bed that did not match any of these individuals and it didn't match any of the victims. It didn't match any of the suspects. So, but you could argue, one could make an argument that uh, that's either the actual killer or this is some piece of DNA evidence that was... That randomly got there. Well, right, because they didn't. They were n- new to the area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's going to be DNA of whoever's been in that house, you know, and whoever lived in the house before the, them. Well, and I think um, I heard one, one expert pointed out the best when it when to me anyway, regarding that hair. And he stated that, you know, could this been a hair that Atif's father, uh, somehow it got, you know, he sat down in his car seat and this hair was on the car seat, got transferred to his pants and then got transferred to the bed. Right. That's a possibility. Could this hair have been a hair that was on the movie theater, the movie theater seat that Sebastian was sitting in transferred to his pants hmm. and then somehow transferred to the bed either during the course of the attack or during the course of finding the bodies. Well, and I think it's back to the original point that you're trying to make though. If we have eyewitnesses claiming they saw Sebastian and Antif in this certain outfit and then after the movies you see them in the same outfits mm-hmm. that you would think that this would be part of their master plan and that Sebastian would remember this. So when he was telling Mr. Big, hey, this is how it went down, he would have said, oh, and I came up with this clever thing where I will take off my clothes, I'll kill them in the nude, I'll take a shower, and I'll put these clothes back on. That would be pretty simple to remember. Mm -hmm. He obviously didn't remember that or it didn't happen, and and that's where the stories start not making a lot of sense. Yeah, and I I wanted to be clear and point out how random – 
that hair could have been, how possibly random that hair could have been, according to that expert's right. opinion. Um, so that doesn't necessarily rule them out either. Correct. It doesn't rule them out, but it also could point to an that, unknown, uh, unknown suspect. Right. The next thing we need to talk about in regards to the confession is the baseball bat, the weapon that was believed to have been used to kill the Rafay family. Mm-hmm. And the concern with this is Al, Mr. Big, wants to know what happened with the bat. Right. Uh, and where did you get the bat? Well, in their confession, Sebastian and Atif have a hard time explaining where they got the bat. Right. I think at one point, Sebastian says, uh, I may have been the one that purchased the bat. Yeah. And uh, I believe Atif says that the bat was just lying around. Right. And so, then I think the disposable, uh, how they disposed the bat was also a little fishy. Yes, because this is where they're talking about those dumpsters mm-hmm. where they state that the they won't find the bat uh, because we put it in one of those dumpsters, dumpsters that were downtown to which Mr. Big is going to explain to them, well, y- you know, what day did you commit these murders? He says, well, it was a Tuesday. So we're dumping these items on Tuesday night in these dumpsters. And Mr. Big says, well, you just hope in that situation that they they didn't empty those dumpsters that Tuesday morning because then they wouldn't come back until the following Tuesday and that evidence could sit there and could be found through the course of the, the, the week. Right. Um, same thing with the, the VCR as well. What did you do with the VCR? We buried it in a dumpster. And what do we mean by buried? It's like they, they got in the dumpster amongst the trash and rubbish inside Mm -hmm. and they buried these items in the trash. Right, and then mm. and then you come back and you make a nine one one call, and the police come and you, but you don't look disheveled, and you're so fresh and so clean, clean. Right. Mm-hmm. Al is worried about Mister Big is worried about fingerprints, and this is when Sebastian says there will be no fingerprints because he wore gloves. Mister Big continues to express concern that later the bat could be located and that Sebastian's prints would be on that bat. Right, or that they'd be able to trace how he bought the bat. To this point, Sebastian tells Mr. Big that the bat was shrink-wrapped in plastic wrap during right. the murders, which this is scientifically incorrect. This this could not have happened because there were small pieces of the bat that were lodged in the wall mm-hmm. at the scene of the murders, and there was no... If, right. There would be rap that would be have been found with that, and that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Before we move on from this item of discussion, while we're talking about gloves, we should point out that later a fingerprint expert testified that the murderer did not wear gloves. That, that this person, this expert, would have found glove marks so, right, okay. at the scene. So just another part of his confession that doesn't make a lot of sense. One thing that will be pointed out time and time again is that the stories change. Okay. Whether it be that you're speaking with Sebastian one-on-one during this confession tape, mm-hmm. or whether you be it that you're speaking with the thief, mm-hmm. that, that Sebastian's story will change as he goes along. And a thief's story will change as he goes along. I agree with this because there is some different information that each of them are putting out from time to time. There's one thing that I have a big problem with, though, when people want to point out that the stories change. Right. Is 
if anybody has watched this videotaped confession, and if for those of you who have not, just to to explain it and describe it and you know better for you, it's not like tuning into the garage and the captain and Nick are going through a story. We're going through a murder and how it happened from from the very beginning all the way through the end. Right. It's not like that at all. That's not this confession. This confession is we have Sebastian sitting on a couch and he's being asked questions. Mm -hmm. He's being asked a question. Sometimes he's giving one or two word answers and other times he might give you a sentence, but he at no point is giving expansive answers. Right. He's at no point giving a whole, a complete story. Rarely does he even get through one point completely. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Big, who is the one that is the expert in drawing out these confessions, confessions that he, he knows is going to be videotaped and later shown to investigators and then potentially to a jury. Once this thing goes to trial, he's jumping all over the place with his questions. In, in yeah. my opinion, it's, and he's like, Hey, what, what happened to the bat? And he gets like a two word answer. And he's like, okay, so why no blood on your clothes and gets a, a short answer. And then he's like, okay, what about fingerprints on the bat? Yeah. And it's it, what, what I hear to me, what I'm hearing in this confession, especially with Sebastian is not so much a story that is changing completely. I almost feel like on most of the points, not all, I want to be clear, not all the points, but on most of the points, I feel like what I'm getting is a little bit of the truth. And then later I might be getting a little more of the truth on that exact point. Yeah, possibly. And it's a weird thing too, because you have a cocky individual with Sebastian, which is, you know, thinks he's you know, holier than thou, maybe one of the smartest people in the world. And then you have these cops that also think that they're brilliant as well, trying to corner him. And, uh, you know, it's the whole confession is just, it's really hard to watch because the acting of the police officers are so, or law enforcement is so awful. They, they try to come off as, you know, these mobster member guys and it just comes off so poorly. I mean, everything is fuck this and fuck that, you know, like it's, it's just so it, it it's like this. It's basically like they tell them at parts, uh, of the investigation that I killed people. Right. But instead of just saying, well, you know, I've killed people too. They're like, I killed that motherfucker and I stabbed him in the motherfucking face and I shot him right in his face and I butt fucked him with his fucking gun. I mean, it's just so over the top that one, how can Sebastian, if he was so smart, not see through this bullshit? Well, and it's weird because I know that these officers have, I shouldn't say that I know I wasn't there with them, but I'm assuming that they've received extensive training in this area. It's so bad, but really, and I know I referenced Sopranos earlier. I, God, I love that show. I miss that show, but mm. I really think you could have, you could have sat a few people down and had them watch a season of Sopranos, give them a leather jacket and a, and a handgun and send them into this hotel room. And they could have pulled off the same, they could have pulled off the same, um, Right. act let's say mm -hmm. well and let's let's be devil's advocate for a second so why would a thief why would sebastian confess to a crime that they didn't commit what's their motivation 
Well, the motivation is they want to get financed for this screenplay. They want to they want to put their art on the big screen and they need dollars to do so. And they really believe and I think Sebastian's even quoted as saying, you know, we believe that if we were in fact found innocent for this crime, well then our our movie's going to make millions and millions of dollars. Right. And so 20 to 30 million is what he said. Is that what he said? Yeah. And you know, it's funny that you, you say that, uh, he, Sebastian may think that he's not only the smartest guy in the room, but possibly one of the smartest people on the planet. I think he even says that at some point during the confession, right? When he's asked if he's how smart he thinks he is, he says, well, one of the most smartest, most intelligent people on the planet. Yeah. I said that because I did the research. Um, (laughs) keep up. Uh, anyways, that's, I don't know if that's their motivation. Cause I, I really think their motivation from the interviews that I was listening to with a, a thief that he's been doing lately. Um, I think he did one with, uh, the fifth estate, their motivation more was, Hey, I got involved with these bad dudes and now they, for me to do more stuff for them, they need to know that. Uh, we're we're reliable people that they uh, we can believe them, and so as much as they're going okay, so now you need to tell me about these murders. They were afraid that if they didn't, or this is what they claim, Sebastian and Atif were afraid that if we don't say we committed these murders, that these guys will think that we're just some chumps that are going to rat them out. And they have given us example after example that we've killed people. And a lot of times when he's saying that they killed people, he's saying, oh, well, this guy crossed me, so I killed him. Or this guy tried to turn me in, so I killed him. So it's it's really, um, one, it's nefarious, and one, it's irresponsible for when Mr. Big, when you hear them talk, and they say, did you ever threaten these guys? Mm-hmm. They say, no, we, we never threatened them. No, but during the confession, you just keep bringing up that you killed people that told on you. You know what I mean? And that you've killed all these people. So it's not wrong to have these young adults that are not they're, they're not so street smart to believe that and to believe that you're capable of murder. And if I did, you know, I'm just going to tell you this to to get you on my back. Does that make well, sense? Well, they, they made every attempt to sell that point and they being Mr. Big and the people working for him or supposedly working for him. And I'll give you some more specific detail regarding this intimidation factor, right. because I, I wholeheartedly agree with the intimidation factor here. I think this is, I think this is wrong. And you and I had a conversation last week. And one thing we were talking about was, you know, when we talked about the yogurt shop murders from Austin, uh, Texas, Mm -hmm. they got confessions from a couple of those, from two of those four guys. And one of the confessions was obtained after an officer took an unloaded handgun and put it to the back of the head of, of one of the people he was trying to get confess. Mm -hmm. This to me, while not that dramatic, this to me is borderline the same thing right but they got guns on the table right and that's what i'm gonna i'm gonna get into that this is borderline the same thing we we have um sebastian a direct quote from sebastian is i believe that if i crossed them they would have killed me and 
so we have Mr. Big. We also have this character named Gary. Gary can be seen. <laughs> yeah, he can be seen on and Gary. off camera during the confessions. And at one point, Gary tells Sebastian that he was a murderer and that Mr. Big had hired him to contract uh, some kills. Right. Gary also says, you want to know what I did my time for? Gary tells Sebastian that he toasted a guy. Oh, Gary. Yeah. And he, he says, you want to know how solid Mr. Big is? Well, when it came time for Gary to go to court and there was a person that could testify against him, putting him in prison, he states, well, that person ain't around anymore. So you know that business gets taken care of. Gary further explained that to Sebastian that Mr. Big had paid $80,000 to kill this witness. Right. Then at one point you have a third undercover officer pretending to be an employee of Gary and Mr. Big. He enters the room to, and then he throws down two handguns on the table in front of Sebastian and indicated that a person had just been shot with one of those guns. So when we, when we reference the intimidation factor here, it's real. This, I mean, this is some, yeah, it's, and it's more real for, like I said, not streetwise young adults. It's more real for any two people sitting in that room. And, but here's where I have a problem with, right. But what I'm saying is if you had a couple guys that are a little more streetwise, like within a few conversations, you'd go, something's up with this, you know? So I see what you're saying that that this is a ruse. Something's not right. 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 I smell, I smell bacon. Even as smart as Sebastian thinks he is, he, he, he certainly was outsmarted in this situation. He's he's a real dumbass. The problem that I have with Sebastian saying, I agree with, I agree with the intimidation to some extent. What, what I have a problem with is when I see you on camera and his, I mean, his mannerisms at no point, at no point on camera, does he appear to be nervous? Does he appear to be intimidated at times? He's smiling when he tells the order of, of who he killed and, and how he killed the individuals. Yeah. But again, you can't read too much into that because I mean, the absurdity of what he's saying could be hilarious to him. So it's really hard to like go, you know, look, if he didn't do these crimes and look, everybody says, well, how can you even say this stuff? You knew them, but you're, you're in a hotel room. You just did money laundering. You just, you know, what the hell are you doing anyways? But now you're sitting there explaining that you killed these people and the ridiculousness of it. Like just because you're smiling or even laughing. I mean, Atif did the same thing. Uh, you know, it's hard to comment on that stuff because we don't know what's going on inside their head. I don't know what's going on in his head, but I'm going to read into it. I'm going to comment on it because I, one thing that we've both agreed upon is that one thing that Sebastian's very proud of self proud of is how intelligent he thinks he is. And when he's, when he's answering these questions, he's lighting up in a way where he's like, I'm to me, this is what it looks like. The guy that thinks, Oh, here I am. The guy that pulled off these three murders. And now I'm the one that's getting to school. This hardened criminal. I'm getting to school. This career criminal on how I pulled this off and why I'm so smart 
oh, I did it without any clothes on, so I wouldn't get any blood on my clothes. Right. Why didn't you have blood on you? Took a shower. Why, yeah. w- you know, what? when did the deed go down? During the movie. You know, and mm. you see him light up when he says these things. That's, sorry, but that's my opinion. That's what I see on on the tape. And the sad part, too, is that I see that from Atif as well. When he's when he's asked to give his story, he's speaking specifically about his family, whether he was involved or not. He's smiling at times. Right, he seems to be enjoying confessing to to this. Again, you have to take into account that these are edited versions of the confession tapes. I mean, multiple times before the confession starts, Sebastian still denies that they had anything to do with it. Multiple times, I think it was something ridiculous, like. 10, 15 times where he said they had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. When Atif is brought in, it's to, hey, these guys uh, basically said, like, they would kill me and kill everybody else if we, like, we got it. They need to know we're on the up and up. Again, it's an edited confession. What a lot, of, a lot of the stuff you don't see is how much he's fishing for answers. You see it a little bit on the confession tapes. He so, being Sebastian or Atif? Atif, b- but both of them, because there's times that they're both in the room together and when they have a question and they're like, well, the bat was there or no, I bought the bat. There's like discrepancies within the conversation mm-hmm. like that. They don't know. Oh, I think we threw those out. I don't know what we did with those. Oh, oh I hope these guys don't figure us out because if they figure us out, we're dead. So I think there's some acting that had to go along, whether they're telling the truth or they're lying. I think uh, they were in a, in a situation where they tried to had to act a little tougher than what they were now in all fairness, you know, I, there was some mannerisms that I saw that could have pointed towards innocence. I should point that out if I'm going to point out the other, right? So, um, you referenced Atif. There are several times where, you know, Atif is sitting in a chair and then to his left is Sebastian. Who's on the love seat. Right. And there are several times where, Atif is giving an answer and he's kind of slow giving the answer. And I see his eyes. They're not wandering. They're looking at Sebastian and it's almost like, help me out. here. Is he looking? Yeah. Is he looking for help with his answer or is he looking for approval, whether he got the information correct or not? And like Mm -hmm. you pointed out by the time that Atif is confessing to this, he's had a whole night of talking with Sebastian the night before, before he's brought back the next morning, you know, before he's brought there the next morning Mm -hmm. to tell his side of the story. So reasons why they would give this confession, but yet still be innocent that the persons point out often are that they're factually inaccurate statements that they gave, that they do not contain realistic detail, that the confessions are based entirely on media reports and various prompts and suggestions from Mr. Big himself. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that's pointed out is that the confessions contain absolutely no holdback evidence, evidence or information that only the killer would have known. I would, I want to address that last, that last little, uh, box there (laughs) before we check that one off. My concerns with that is, is there any holdback evidence? You know, I mean, they couldn't. They couldn't give a confession that would contain holdback evidence if there is none. Right. And and we know that in cases that police like to do that, that you would ideally have holdback evidence that only the killer or killers would know. But we also know from having looked at plenty of these 
that sometimes they're just nothing got held back. Everything was out there. Everything was reported. Everything was in the media. All right. On July 31st, 1995, this is after having the confessions. Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay, they are charged with three counts of aggravated first degree murder. And Jimmy Mayoshi is charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Right. They are incarcerated in Vancouver, Canada. Between the years of 1995 and 2001, they remained incarcerated in maximum security pretrial facilities in British Columbia. That's Mm -hmm. six years. Now, why would they stay in prison for that long? Well, there are several reasons, but one being that they're probably facing the death penalty once they return to the United States. There's usually some negotiation that goes down between the countries before they're willing to send somebody back if they are in fact going to face the death penalty. Right. And some interesting things here is so they argue and basically the state of Washington says, Hey, we're not going to seek the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So therefore send them to us. So, right. And basically, you know, Canada um, outlawed the death penalty a while ago. So, okay, that makes some sense. So now we're sending our citizens down there. But the weirdest thing about it was the way they got these confessions were based on Canada law. It's not legal here in the United States. Right. As you pointed out, the Mr. Big strategy. So, So when they go into trial pretty quickly, they know that these confession tapes are going to be, you know, allowed in the courtroom. After having been incarcerated in the fall of 1995, Jimmy Maoshi, he obtains immunity for his charge of conspiracy to commit murder in return for statements that would incriminate Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay. Now, the trial begins in Seattle, Washington. This is in November of 2003. On the stand, Maoshi, he recounts a discussion with Sebastian and with Atif regarding how they would commit the murders. He states that he remembered hearing something about gassing the house and remembered a discussion about using a baseball bat. When asked why a baseball bat, he says, I guess that it was, it's a quick and painless way of killing someone. A part of Mayoshi's statements and testimony that I think is the most damning, and I'm sure the jurors felt the same way, is when he's asked about a conversation of of their plan. A big part of their plan was that Sebastian and Atif wanted to be in the Rafay home and stay there for a few days before committing the murder Mm -hmm. because this would explain away any fingerprint evidence, any hair evidence, any fibers, any DNA that may have been found of theirs at the crime scene. Yeah, that's kind of fishy, but um, I think the point that people forget about Jimmy is that when he was arrested, when he didn't have pressure on him, when the death penalty wasn't hanging over his head, his friends were innocent. They were lying about these confessions. His, to me, his demeanor during his tape confession was that he did not want to say this, that he didn't want to go along with this idea, and that he didn't believe that his friends were guilty of this crime. That's my gut feeling. So now that he's being pressured that, hey, if you don't cooperate, you're going to be facing the death penalty, which we all knew was a lie anyways. Again, another tactic of you know strong-arming somebody into saying something that I don't know if it's true or not. 
So just because that there was that thing hanging over his head, the death penalty hanging over his head, I don't know if I believe anything this guy says. On May 26, 2004, Sebastian and Atif are convicted of three counts of first-degree murder. Yeah, and they both give kind of different statements. Um, their final statements. Sebastian's final statements like over two hours <laughs> yeah, long. Yeah, it's I a mean, very, it's at least two hours long. And uh, his is more that this was unfair and this was unjust and um, blah, 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 blah. And Atif's is more like, you know, you know, his saddened is, by all this. Yeah, his is I loved my family. I loved my father. I loved my mother. I wouldn't have killed them. Um, I don't know why anybody else would have killed them. Um, so his, his statements sound remorseful. Um, and Sebastian's don't sound remorseful, but if you believe what he's saying, they don't need to sound remorseful because he's not guilty of anything. Yeah. Uh, but th- th- everything Sebastian says makes him sound like a dick face, you know? So do you think that they got it right? Do you think that the jurors got it right? Oh, how about you start this one off? Uh, this is a, if if I start to tailspin out of control, reel me back in here. Okay. So I don't know. <laughs> I look, Captain. I don't know. I really don't know. Right. And, and that's full disclosure, complete honesty. I don't know because here's what chicken butt. My gut tells me mm-hmm. that they they probably did it. That's what my gut tells me. The problem is I can't find evidence to support that gut feeling right um here's the thing i i do want to go through a couple of a couple of things that that may or may not point to their guilt yeah go go with what uh, you know leads you to that because i i do i do like chopping down some of these things that people are like they're innocent they're innocent you know and some Mm -hmm. of it like we said about uh how things are presented and i'm going to go back to the there had to be three killers situation in the room with Mr. Raffay when he was killed. And the reason why they state that there would have been three kill three people in that room is there's one person swinging the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. There is a pillow that because of blood spatter evidence, we know was moved. It would have been on the bed during the early part of the murder right. and it would have been moved to the floor later while the murder is still being committed. Right. So there's no blood for a while. Then there's some blood evidence. Why there would be a third person is because in a location where a person would not have been able to move that pillow, there is a, there's a shadow, almost an outline of a person. Right. And there's blood spatter around that shadow, around that silhouette. So that would put one creating the silhouette, one moving the pillow, one swinging the murder weapon. I don't believe that to be the situation at all. I absolutely believe all this points to me is that there were two people in that room. Right. And reason being is, okay, think about when you're taught CPR. The first thing that they tell you is that if you find somebody unresponsive and they are in a bed, well, you need to get them and place them on a hard surface before you start performing the CPR. Why? Because as soon as you do that, once you start pushing down on the victim, they're going to, the bed is going to create them. So they start bouncing or pushing back up. Mm-hmm. It's just natural. It's just going to happen. So you put them on a hard surface. Think about if somebody were swinging a bat 
on the on a victim laying in a bed. It's going to create the same motion, a quake effect that would move the pillow from the bed to the floor. So I don't know that there had to have been a third person in the room for that to take place. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I question is we know the order of who was attacked. We know that the mother was attacked first and then the father and then the sister. Again, I don't know. I don't have a full understanding of her autism, but here's one thing that I, I wonder, and I hope that they checked this with the blood spatter evidence, but is there a chance that the second person in the room didn't have to be a killer? Is there a chance that she, for some reason, came into that room and witnessed a portion of that murder before she was attacked? There's a there's a likelihood that you have this evidence out there. There may have only be one guilty person in this situation. So what you're saying is that you think there's a possibility that this crime was committed by one individual and there was only one individual at the crime scene? Possibly. I, right. I wouldn't rule that out. I hope that they checked... Atif's sister for certain evidence, DNA evidence of her father, if that makes any sense. Yeah, Um, I think uh, the other thing here, though, too, is uh, if there was two individuals, right, we have a lot of blood in that shower mm -hmm. that to me could could have been one person, but it also makes sense that if there was multiple people there and they decided to clean up before they left, then that would explain the amount of of blood yeah. that was washed. Up. Yeah. I'm just simply stating that for people saying that three people had to have commit committed this crime and that therefore rules out Atif and Sebastian. Right. I'm saying I don't believe that one bit. I, I need more proof that, that more than two people were there. Was it committed by one person or two people? I don't know, but that that's the most I've gotten to as far as, as number of perpetrators go. Okay. The other questionable thing that I have here. So those items might point towards more towards their guilt, you know, if if there were only two people there. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that might point towards their innocence, and this is one thing that I ha- that I can't get over, is the amount of overkill on the father. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they point out, they being the police, that this is this points to somebody knowing the victim. That that, that a lot of times in crimes we will see, see overkill because there's a deep hatred from the person killing the person to the the victim. Mm -hmm. There's a deep hatred. Well, not necessarily in this case. the, 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 The perpetrator may in fact have known them. It doesn't have to be somebody close on their inner circle. If Sebastian was in fact the one that was swinging the murder weapon, what evidence do we have that he hated this man so much that he hit him 40 or 50 times? Right. Why, why would he go to overkill? It seems to me like they, if, if in fact they killed the Rafay family, they simply did it for money that they simply did it to, uh, live together and have some money to finance their, their goal, their dream. Right. I, I, I guess o- overkill is not necessary. That's uh, just to remind you that that's what, uh, Atif kept on saying in his confession was, uh, yeah, we did this for money, I guess. <laughs> right. He'd like to end everything with. Right. And that's I what I mean. There, there would be no reason for overkill. Now, right. let yeah. me throw this at you. Mm-hmm. We had those three tips. All three of those tips involve some form of, of what you could say is an easy leap to religious hatred that somebody could hate another uh, 
person for religious reasons. Why would there be overkill on one victim, the father, and not overkill on the other two victims? If you had somebody that was just busting into a place for a thrill kill, you would see overkill on all three of these individuals. Right. They're trying to make a statement. If you were looking and believed that monetary, this was just a money, that money was the motive, you wouldn't see overkill on any of these victims. Whoever killed Mr. Raffae hated that man very badly. Right. Which those, which to me, I need, I need, you would have to point out reasons why that would mean, why that would implicate Sebastian. Right. Or, and I don't see those. I just don't see those. And I don't have a problem with the jury. I don't have a problem with their final conclusion with, with the guilty verdict on both of these guys. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is I think the way that this case was presented to them and what was presented to them in court, I think it would be hard for me not to have given a guilty verdict as well. What I do have a problem with is this whole confession to begin with. I don't think it should have ever been allowed in the courtroom. And I think without this confession, you, you have no way to convict these guys. There's no way, there's no way you could get me to go. Yep. They're guilty. Right. You just couldn't do it. I think, I think this confession is there's, there's parts of it that do not ring true to me. There are parts of it that I think can are probably bogus. It's one of those weird cases, captain. My gut tells me one thing. The evidence shows me another. And without this, this is not legal in the United States. This, uh, the way they obtain this confession is not legal in the United States. How can they use it in our court of law? I, I, I don't understand. Yeah. And what, what the government argued for years about this case and what they rightfully decided was this crime took place in Washington and will be tried in Washington because that's where the crime took place. And so you should have to go off of that set of rules. Mm -hmm. So if somebody goes over to the Middle East and they're in a country where it's okay to rip toes off or cut hands off to get somebody to confess and uh, they get somebody to confess to a murder that took place in New York city and they transfer the person from the middle East over to New York city. We're, are we going to go with that confession? Right. Are we going to allow that in? And I think um, in this case, these guys should be, whether you think they're guilty or innocent or whether they're guilty or innocent, these guys should be set free for the fact that you made up the rules as you went along and that's not something that we should be doing as a system, a justice system. It's supposed to be uh, truth and justice, and you didn't try to find either. The other thing that's really disturbing about this case is that there was a jury member that was highly against this confession and it took notes of over 250, maybe 300 pages of notes. This jury member was, uh, before the verdict was taken place, they were excused from the trial. And I feel like this is uh, this was a tactic. Yeah, but I think from the beginning, I mean, it was like we're going to get this Mister Big op- operation in. We are going to get them to confess. Then we're going to get them down to you, and then we're going to make sure that this goes through. And because um, they they allowed in so much stuff uh, that I think they just shouldn't have, and I don't think they got a fair trial. 
and it's sad that these guys are uh, in jail. Again, whether they did it or not, that's not the point. It's mm-hmm. a justice system. All right, Captain, what are your other thoughts? All right, so I think um, my gut feeling is that they are innocent, that they 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 didn't do this. I don't think it was n- enough of a motivation. You have a pretty wealthy family that seems to be helping you out doing things. You're in a nice college. What's this? Uh, yeah, I know it's a few hundred thousand dollars, and you think that's like a really big deal, but... Uh, how much is that going to change your life? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's enough of a motivation to kill your whole family for a few hundred thousand dollars. Now, one of the points of evidence to me, other than the fact that we have so many eyewitnesses that claim that they saw them, right? Mm-hmm. One of the major points for me that I, I can't really get over, and so I can't say that they're guilty, is the sister. Now, I think a lot of people see that, oh, well, we came home, and we noticed the mom's dead and we noticed my dad's dead and I could hear my sister. And I think a lot of people go, well, he needed her to die. That's why he didn't help her. Right. Mm-hmm. So that would point to him being guilty. But you call the police, you know, she's not dead. There's a chance that the police are going to get there in time. And by the way, when the police can't find the house, what are you doing? Hey, we're over here. Mm hmm. If you need her to die so you can get this money, right? And right. then you don't have her to, you know, you're not going to be responsible for her. Then you don't need the cops to get there right away. And you can let it, the time elapse even more. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you show up after the movies and after you get done at this club. Mom's dead. Dad's dead. Sister's not dead yet. Now you got an option. You can finish her off. Or you can just wait an hour or so and then call police or when police are coming there, you don't flag them down. Mm-hmm. So that's the one uh, piece of evidence that, that I can't say that they're guilty because of that piece of evidence. All right. So these two pieces of evidence to me that I can't say that they're hundred percent innocent are this during Sebastian's confession. He says these murders took place during when they were supposed to be in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And then the forensic evidence matched that. So out of all the things that he might have got wrong or might have not remembered, he got the time of death of when they had to be at the house. Right. He got ki- the time frame right. Right. A small window of time, he got that exactly right. Right. And what is super odd here is that he has done this before. In high school, he wrecked his car. And when he wrecked his car, he decided that he was going to try to create an alibi. And he did so by saying he moved the pieces that of the wreckage, moved his car, moved them to a movie theater, right. then got tickets or whatever. And so to kind of claim like, well, I wasn't involved in the crash. Now, this is a big lie. Yeah. This is fraud. This is a big deal. This is this is criminal stuff. And I know that his father and so many other people have said, but these were just little kids at the time. Yeah, but sometimes little kids create murders and that makes them awful pieces of shit, right? So this this is a bad thing. This is lying. This is fraud. Um, well, however you look at insurance companies, who cares? It's The fact is it's a big deal and he's tried to do this alibi before. I think that's very 
fishy. So not only does he get the time correctly, he also tried to use this as an alibi earlier in his life. And because of those two things, uh, this is going to become a red light case for me. I mean, it already has where I, I have thought, oh, well, see, but this makes them look innocent. Mm-hmm. But, oh, you see, this makes them look guilty. I've changed my opinion four or five times in the past two weeks. Yeah, but we both agree that the way they got these confessions were it was wrong. wrong. It's just wrong. And they shouldn't have been used at trial. And if they weren't used at trial, I don't think they would have been able to get a conviction. All right, Captain, how about a little recommended reading for this week? All right, me mateys. We're recommending Beautifully Cruel, So Lovely, So Twisted by award-winning journalist M. William Phelps. This is heart-pounding story- storytelling at its best. Phelps gives us a chilling account of the last person anyone would assume to be a cold-hearted killer, a beautiful, devoted mother and housewife in a small town. This housewife seemed to have it all, but beneath the happy facade was a woman who used lies, manipulation, sex, and even murder to serve her own selfish needs. Check out Beautifully Cruel, So Lovely, So Twisted by M. William Phelps. Yeah, you can check out all of our recommended reading since the beginning, since we started doing the recommended reading, just go to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and click on the recommended page. And while you're at the website, go to the blog page, because I want to hear if you think that these guys are guilty, if they're innocent. So join in the conversation. All right. Now, we want everybody out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We want to thank everybody for joining. <laughs> uh, one more time. We'll try it three, four more times. We want to thank everybody for joining us in the garage. We give you a cheers, whether it be a long distance or one nearby. Up close. How about a little Shiner holiday cheers, yeah. right? To warm the heart this cold, this cold, cold week that <laughs> we've feet, had. My feet are freezing right now. All right. Until next time, friends, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.